Father, as you know, I'm so grateful today for the blessings of life that you've given to me and to each one of us. As we're going to see today, just the fact that we're breathing and, and here today as those made in your image is, is a sign of your goodness. And Father, I pray that as we open your book now, your word to us, which we believe here at Scottsdale Bible Church is your truth, your revelation to us. I pray, God, that you might open the eyes of some of us, give us ears to hear and eyes to see those things that you have revealed, especially today, as it has to do with your goodness. God, there's some of us here today that doubt and wonder whether you're really good. I pray that today we might see that, that as the psalmist says, we might taste and see that you are good. And so, God, uh, do that in us, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. <coughs> well, um, one of the things that you and I, yeah, all of you are coughing with me. Thank you. Anyways, uh, one of the things that uh, most of us have experienced at this point in life, and, and I think it's something we could all agree upon, is that sometimes the most simple things in life are the most profound. Have you found that yet? Sometimes the most simple things in life are, are actually the most profound. So, for instance, the words, I love you. I mean, simple words, really only three of them, not that hard to say, but said to the right person at the right time in the right way are extremely profound words. Simple things, very profound. Or how about an Arizona sunset? Have you ever tried explaining one of those to those back in the Midwest? When I first moved here three and a half years ago, I said to my friends, you got to see these sunsets. They're incredible. And they said, hey, I've seen one sunset, seen them all. And I'm like, no, you don't get it. There's something very profound about an Arizona sunset. A simple thing, really, but very profound. Or how about fishing for some of you? It's just a line and a hook. Or collector cars for others of you. It's just metal and paint. Or how about a piece of art for some of you? It's just colors on a canvas. I mean, sometimes the most simple things in life can actually be the most profound. And what you need to know this morning, folks, is that it's no less true when it comes to our understanding of God. That though theology, this study of God, can certainly be complex and intricate at times, like when we try to study the Trinity or the hypostatic union of Christ or things like that, but there's other times, however, when some of the most simple things about who God is are actually the most profound. The, the things that a three-year-old could understand about God are actually things that can move an 80-year-old who's been a Christian for all of his or her life. And so today and next week, as we wrap up this series on grace through our Embrace Grace campaign and move on to the next journey of grace, that idea of the grace in the family, I want to look at two relatively simple character traits, one that is God's and one that is ours, and how these relatively simple character traits actually become profound pathways to knowing and experiencing God's grace. It's really true, folks, that there are some very easy to get and understand character traits of God and even of us that once we rally around can become a pathway to profoundly experiencing His grace. And I want to show you that this week and next week. And so with this said, I want to dive right in and set up our topic for today, this idea of God's goodness, and we begin with a clear and poignant passage that I hinted to in my prayer from the Psalms, written almost 3,000 years ago, but as relevant today as it was back then. Look up here on the screen, it's Psalm 34, verse 8. In fact, if you brought a Bible, open there right now, because though we're going to look at a lot of different passages today to get our heads and hearts around this idea of God's goodness, um, we're going to really use as our theme verse, Psalm, Psalm 34, verse 8 here, and you'll see why in just a second. It says this, O taste and see that the Lord is good. 
I love it. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Focus on that little phrase right there, taste and see. Taste it and see it. Recognize it. Open your eyes to it. See it for all that it is. And then don't stop there, he says. Taste it. Experience it. Try it out. Savor it for a little while on your spiritual palate. And then fully ingest it into your life and being. And what is it that you're tasting and seeing here? The goodness of God. The reality that God is always good. That nothing is either in him or that can flow from him that is contrary to his ultimate goodness to the fact that he is right and decent. And so here is what Bible experts for years have added up as a good definition of God's goodness from the hundreds of passages that exist on God's goodness as found in the Bible. Here's a good working definition of what his goodness is. Look up here on the screen, and that is that God's goodness is the combination of his love, generosity, grace, and kindness. For those of you who are technically inclined, if you're looking for a good working definition of his goodness, this is it. God's goodness is a combination of his love, generosity, grace, and kindness. So when you consider the fact that God loves this world and that he is generous and kind to this world, both in making it and even keeping it going, considering the mess that we've made of things, and that he even shows us and gives us his grace, as we've seen in this series, which is simply his love and kindness when we deserve it the least, then it clearly adds up to a living picture of how good God really is. And so this is exactly what Psalm chapter or Psalm 145 verses 8 and 9 are getting at when it says this, that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. So when you add it together, folks, gracious, merciful, generous, and not getting too angry at our sin too fast, and then abounding in steadfast love, what does all of that equal? Simply the fact that the Lord God is good. He is good. And so I love how the famous author and preacher A.W. Tozer says it in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, when he says this. Look up here on the screen. He says, The goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. He is tender-hearted and quick of sympathy, and his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people." We're going to parse out in just a few minutes some more intricacies of how and why God is so good. But let's begin by honoring the fact that God, in his nature, is good and bestows goodness upon us. And it's seen in his kindness and his generosity and his grace to you and me. And at this point in our look at God's goodness, I simply have to ask you the question on a very practical level. Did you know that about God? Do you think about God? in those terms. Is this how you see God as good in this way? I mean, some of you have a very different view of God here today. You do. You tend to see God maybe based on the experience of your earthly father who was grouchy and stern or even absent or maybe even abusive as someone who was always mad and disappointed with you. Not as God describes himself, as one who is slow to anger, kind, benevolent, good-hearted towards you. 
Uh, J.B. Phillips, years ago, wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. And one of the very first chapters in that book talks about the fact that there are many of us who tend to see God as our earthly fathers. And if our earthly father was kind of falling short as an earthly father, we tend to project that on God. Ergo, your God is too small. And some of you here today have had a lot of trouble (coughs) seeing God as good, as somebody who really loves you. You've tended to see him more as a heavenly killjoy that never smiles, whose heart is never touched by human suffering, who simply sits and rules in heaven with an iron fist waiting to squash you based on your next sin. God is not that way, folks. God, according to the Bible, is giving and forgiving when it comes to his approach to you and me. And as we're going to see, it's key to understanding this if you're going to experience his grace. That he has not only given us this world and each other and even all of the blessings that we have, we'll parse that out in just a second here, but then in an ultimate act of, giving, of, of grace, he has given us Jesus Christ as the forgiveness for our sins to bring us into relationship with himself. And so it's a paradigm shift for some of us here today to see God as good, to see him as expressing himself in love, generosity, grace, and kindness. Now, believe it or not, with this definition, we're just scratching the surface. I'm telling you, we are. But we're still, if you can picture it, in the shallow end of understanding God's goodness with this definition that we have here. So I want to move us right now into a deeper end of understanding His goodness to us. And I want to do so by sharing with you two rich theological truths. Two truths that the Bible gives us about God's goodness, both of which are going to cause you to think a little bit more about how and why God is so good, and what that really means for us. And then I'm going to give you three take-home truths. So here are the first two theologians. Here's the first of the two theological truths we need to understand to go into the deep end of God's goodness. And it's this, that God's goodness is rooted in his nature and flows from it. Man, this is all that some of you need to hear this morning, that God's goodness is rooted in his nature and flows from it. But what do we mean by this? I want you to look at a passage tucked away in the longest chapter in the entire Bible. Some of you know where that is, Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the entire Bible. And I want you to look at Psalm 119, verse 68. Psalm 119, verse 68. And it says this, you, meaning God, are good and do good. Pause right there. You, God, are good and do good. And so get this, folks. God's goodness is both core to his nature. He is good through and through. And because of this, anything that he does is good because it is always consistent with his nature. In other words, God just doesn't act good like some of us do, where we act good and do good things, but even though on the inside we know we really don't want to do it and our heart's really not inclined toward good, we're just kind of faking it till we make it. No, God never does that. God, when he acts good, always flows from the fact that at his core, he is good. God's goodness is core to his nature. It's who he is. And so only from this do good things flow from him. Uh, There was a time in the Christian church about 400 years ago (coughs) when people uh, didn't have a lot to do in life like we do today. World travel was not what it was. Um, They didn't have a lot of the resources that you and I have today, certainly not the entertainment mediums that we have today of TV and video games. And so some of you wondered, what did they do back then? Well, a lot of them sat around and thought about God. 
They were called the Puritan culture. They just sat around and they just explored intricate things of theology and started to parse out and try to philosophically and theologically understand God on a deeper level. And there was one Puritan by the name of Thomas Manton who uh, wrote at one point extensively on this idea of God's goodness. And I want you to listen, look up on the screen at what Manton at one point said about God's goodness because I find this is very rich and goes deeper than how many of us usually think about God. He says this, he says, he, God, is originally good, good of himself. He is essentially good, not only good, but goodness itself. He is eternally and immutably good, for he cannot be less good than he is. Now try to think about that, folks. He's saying that God in himself, in his being, defines goodness. And because God in his essence is goodness, then anything that flows from God must be good. And even more so, that anything we ever see God do that is good, we need to understand flows from his character of goodness because God, by definition, could be none else. This is what A.W. Pink, famous theologian, termed the underived goodness of God, the underived goodness of God. The fact that God is the only one who there could be said of in which there is no external influence on his goodness that it all comes from within and it all flows purely and freely from who he is. And so look at how Pink puts it. Look up here on the screen. He says, he, God, was eternally good before there was any communication of his bounty or any creature to whom it might be imparted. And so check this out. Before God even made this world, created you and I, when only the Trinity existed for all eternity, he was good. He was good in his nature. He was good in his essence. Before there was any showing of it at all in the creation that he made, God is and was good. And so think about the practical, practical implications of that, folks. In a world in which you and I live in, where image is everything, in which what is portrayed on the outside is not always what you get on the inside, in which what you see is not always what you get, in which it's so hard to know if what someone presents on the outside is really what is true about them on the inside, God comes along and he says, with me, what you see is what you get that I am good in and of myself, and what flows from me is 100% and totally compatible with my good nature. And so God is not like many people that you know who might put off an image of being good, but you know inside they're really downright not good. That you know that what comes from it is stemming from bad and selfish and impure motives. Many of you know people like that. Even yourself, you're like that at times. Let's just be honest here today. God is never like that. He is never like that. Everything that flows from him is good and consistent with his good nature. God, by his very nature, is himself good. And when you and I tap into that, as we're going to see in a moment here, it has profound implications for our lives and for our understanding of God and our experience of his grace. Now, before we get to that, I want to ask and answer another question that will lead us to this second theological truth about God's goodness. And it's the question of, okay, Jamie, I get that God is immutably and eternally good, that his nature is good and from him flows only good things, but I don't always see him as good because my lot in life and my circumstances, which God has some control over, are not good. 
And so how do I reconcile that? I mean, in what ways, we might be asking, is God good? It's the second theological truth I need you to own with me this morning, and it's this, that God's goodness is most seen in creation, revelation, and redemption. This will rock some of your worlds. God's goodness is most seen, and that's the key phrase there, most seen, because it's seen in many ways, but it's most seen in creation, revelation, and redemption. So first, consider how God's goodness is seen simply and powerfully in the fact that he made this world, that he made you, and that he originally made it good. Look at Genesis 1, verse 31. It says, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was, say it with me, very good. Very good. He made this world, and he made it good. It's a result of his goodness. And how is this world good? We might ask, well, first, the fact that we as human beings are so wonderfully designed and created is a sign of his goodness. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 139. Look at Psalm 139, verse 14. It says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. That He's assuming that we're his works. My soul knows it very well. So the fact that you are an intricate, creative, functional, willful, thinking, breathing, feeling creature is a sign of God's goodness to you. And what this means here this morning, folks, if you're latching on to this at all, is that no matter what your lot in life right now, no matter what circumstances you're going through, whether good or bad, you can thank God and praise Him and see Him in His goodness by the fact that you have life itself, for the fact that you exist and breathe and are more intricately, intricately and wonderfully designed than all other creatures, that's a sign of His goodness to you. And so no matter what your lot in life is, you can thank him that you weren't born a cat or that you weren't born a worm or that you, I don't know, there's no diss against cats there. I mean, somebody said to me earlier, said, oh, you're going to get emails about cats. I'm just saying, aren't you glad you're a human being and not a cat? Aren't you glad you're a human being and not a dog? A human being versus a fish, a human being versus a tree, a human being versus a worm, a human being versus a rock. I mean, the reality is of all the things that, that God could have made and he has made, he made you in his image breathe the breath of life into you. And the fact that you are here today breathing, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what your lot in life is, no matter what things you're facing, you thank him for his goodness to you because you're made as you are. And as the old saying goes, God doesn't make no junk. The reality is he has made you in his image and he loves you. And that's a sign of his goodness. I got to tell you, my kids have heard this a thousand times, but one of the phrases I use quite often when I have a bad week, whether it's a bad week here at the church or a bad week uh, at home, like right now with this, this upper respiratory thing, I'll say quite often when people say, man, that must be tough, I'll say, well, yeah, but if this is the worst thing that happens to me this week, I'm blessed. I say that all the time. I think I'll say that when I get the news of whatever's going to kill me, whether it's a heart disease or cancer or whatever. Honestly, I think my response will be, if this is the worst thing that happens to me this week, I'm blessed. And the reason that I can say that is because of cogent theology. Paul the Apostle said the same thing. He said, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. Jesus said they, they, they can kill the body, but they can't touch the soul. So if your soul is centered on God and his goodness to you, and you have right theology that understands his goodness in creation, redemption, and revelation, and redemption, then the reality is no matter what your circumstances, no matter what your lot in life is, if this is as bad as it gets, I'm okay. 
Because the worst that's going to happen to me is that I'm going to die and be in the full presence of God for all of eternity, experiencing his goodness in an unhindered fashion. And what's a bummer about that? I mean, that's an amazing place to be. And so if this is the worst that it gets, no matter what happens to me this week, I'm still pretty blessed. The other week I got a phone call from a a gentleman that I've been praying with on on Sunday mornings about a certain circumstance in his life. It's a very difficult circumstance. He's facing some some difficult situations. And as we've been praying for a while there, we thought things were were doing better and things were on the up and up. And got a call a couple weeks ago from him where he got some news that week where it was going downhill and looking pretty bad. And as you can imagine, he was in a very discouraged and even disillusioned frame of mind when he called me on that Tuesday. And so as we were talking there on the phone, he made a comment at one point that I've heard often at times, but it's always a scary comment. He said, you know, Pastor, I think that uh, I just sometimes wonder if my life would be better if I just wasn't here, if I just wasn't on this earth anymore. And I said, I, I know what you mean by that. I, I, I said, but, but let me try to help correct your thinking on this level. I said, you have a wife and children, and you're a great gift to them. I, I, I said, you're, you're in a bad way now, and your circumstances are low, and you're really struggling. I, I, I said, but you need to change your thinking here and, and get your focus off your circumstances and get them on God who loves you, who made you in his image, who cares for you, who is sovereign over your life, who though your circumstances are struggling right now, he is still good. And get your sights upon him and realize that the mere fact that you are alive today, breathing, is a sign of his gift to you, and he doesn't want you to change that at all. And he agreed. He agreed. Why? Listen, because he believes that God is good, and he believes that all things that flow from him are good. And though we live in a fallen world in which circumstances and our lot in life can present some very difficult situations for us. It doesn't change the goodness of God. And it doesn't change his love and his posture towards you. He has created you. And he loves you. And in his creation is a sign of his goodness. And if that was all he ever gave us, I wonder sometimes if that would be enough. But you see, he's given us even more. The fact that God has shown us his goodness, we also see it in the fact that he has blessed many of us with lots of tangible and intangible things. Tangible things like our vocation, our job, our physical resources, intangible things like our our family, the love we share with them, our friendships. I love Psalm 103 verse 5 when it says this, speaking of God, it says, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. I actually like the way that the New American Standard Bible and the King James Version translates this. It says, who satisfies you with good things. Things. And not just material things, but things in your life that are signs of God's bounty and his goodness to you. Your family, your friends, those who care for you, even the tangible blessings you have. None of it's an accident. Though God blesses in many indiscriminate ways, seemingly, in other words, he blesses some more than others on a tangible physical level, the reality is, especially here in the Western world, all of us have been blessed with God in some ways. And as we're going to see in a minute, a pathway toward experiencing and understanding his grace is to thank him for those blessings. Not always wanting more, that's covetousness and jealousy, but thanking him and accepting from his hand what he gives 
I love Ecclesiastes 5, verse 19. It says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Isn't that cool? It's very similar to what Paul the Apostle said to Timothy when he said, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Be content with what you have. Thank God for his blessings to you because it's a sign of his goodness. It will keep you focused on his goodness. And folks, believe it or not, it doesn't stop there. This is just icing on the cake of his real goodness to us because when we look deeper, we realize that his greatest blessing is not in the area of creation or anything like that. His greatest blessing is in fact that he has revealed himself to us in his word and in his son Jesus Christ and given us redemption so that we might be brought into right relationship with him. And so check out Titus chapter 2 verse 11. It couldn't be more clear. It says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God which we saw earlier in our definition, is simply an outpouring of God's goodness. The grace of God has been given to us in the offer of salvation, which comes to us in the revelation of Jesus Christ. You wonder whether God is good or not in your life. You wonder because of your circumstances whether he really is active and good to you. Open your eyes. He has not only made you in his image and blessed you with certain things, but he has given you Jesus Christ who is a sign of his love and grace to you so that you might have salvation and know him eternally and have joy unspeakable, even this side of heaven. And so the next time that you think you have nothing, the next time you wonder where God is and what he is up to in your life, don't forget that his goodness has never waned and it never will wane. It's all around you if you just open your eyes and taste and see his goodness because he's given it to you and it's all around you. And when you finally get this, folks, the fact that his goodness is most seen in creation, revelation of Jesus Christ, redemption through him, you realize that God has done all of that in order to bring us into relationship with himself. Isn't that cool? That God actually has a point in blessing you. He has a point in giving you Jesus Christ, and that is that he might draw you near to himself in relationship through all the blessings that he's given to you. As the great Westminster Confession of Faith said, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I like how John Piper changed that a little bit. He said the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And that when we find our deepest satisfaction in the, in the goodness of God, the fact that he has blessed us in Christ, we then enjoy him and we give great glory to him. And that's the reason that God reveals his goodness to us. Make no mistake, folks. The songwriter, when he said, God is so good, wasn't kidding. That his goodness is seen to us in so many ways, all summed up and bringing us into relationship with himself. And so what do we do with this? What do we take home from this look at God's goodness that might point us along the pathway of grace? Three take-home commitments I want to leave with you in just a few minutes that we have before the communion table. Three things that you can do. I know we're a pragmatic culture, so all you want to know, what do I do? What do I do with this? Well, three things you can do with this understanding of God's goodness that will draw you along the pathway toward His grace. Here's the first one. Thank Him for His goodness to you. Or saying it personally, I will thank God for His goodness to me. 
Pat mentioned earlier I was going to quote J.I. Packer. It has nothing to do with the football game this afternoon, but J.I. Packer wrote a classic book that I read when I first got saved back in the 80s called Knowing God. And in this book, he says something very profound that has kept me going in my Christian life. Look up here on the screen. He says, appreciate the goodness of God. Count your blessings. Learn not to take natural benefits, endowments, and pleasures for granted. Learn to thank God for them all. You know, I love about what Packer's getting at here is that there's both an offensive and a defensive approach then or posture toward this idea of God's goodness. On an offensive level, we actively thank God daily for all the blessings that we have, and we need to be in the habit of doing that. When we rise in the morning, right after we have breakfast, when we're in our midday quiet moment, when you're driving to your lunch appointment, when you're coming home at five, when before you right go to bed during commercials and law and order, wherever it is for you, just thank Him for His goodness to you. Don't let a moment go by where you're not saying, thank you, God, for the blessings I have. That's an offensive, active way to give thanks to God and get in touch with His goodness. But then on a defensive level, what Packer's also saying here is don't ever let ingratitude or lack of gratitude creep into your life where you doubt the goodness of God or don't thank Him for His goodness. It's what Romans 2.4 was getting at where it says, or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Be guard your heart and your mind from ever presuming on the riches of His kindness. You know, I don't know how you've done it in your family, but over the years, one of the things that Kim and I have done in every circumstance that we've been in with our children is tried to beat into them, not literally, I'm talking spiritually and relationally, beat into them this idea of being thankful to God for the blessings that we have. So when we had a little 800-square-foot apartment and two kids, and we were just teaching them to speak and to think and to act, we told them how thankful we were for what God had blessed us with, for the church that we were serving, for the little apartment we had, for the 10-year-old car, little Malibu station wagon. You guys remember those that we were driving around in at that time? We were grateful for God's blessings. Then as we kind of moved along and as I grew in my pastoral career, we thanked God for the first house that we bought when I was 30 years old. Even though many of my friends had bought one four or five years earlier, I thank God on the day they allowed me to take out my first mortgage where I owed a lot of money and had a house. And, and I was grateful to Him. And I said to my kids, we need to thank God right now and bless this house for what He's given to us. And over the years, through every leg of our journey up and down, We've thanked God with our family and just said we need to be thankful for what He has given us. Gratitude is the attitude that will lead you along the pathway toward His grace. Second thing that you can do is then commit to tasting more of His goodness to you or to put it again in the first person, I will taste more of His goodness to me. I'm telling you, this one will rock your world. Uh, look at Psalm 34, 8 again and notice something with me. Again, our theme verse for this morning, it simply says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, one of the most simple things that commentators point out about that passage there, this is funny. They point out the fact that it's not a one-time tasting, that it's not a nibble being talked about here, but that what the psalmist is saying is taste and see that God is good and continue to taste it taste it. I mean, just binge on the goodness of God. And as you do so, you'll be on a lifelong journey of tasting more and more and more and more of His, of his goodness every step of the way. 
in a sense, obsessed on his goodness and always trying to find more ways to see him and experience him as good. And so what does this mean? Well, if you're a seeker here today, somebody who has yet to experience Christ and his salvation, you've probably already experienced God's goodness in creation. You've looked around this world. You've said, I'm not sure that the evolutionists are completely right because it seems like random chance couldn't have created all the intricacies and wonderful beauty of this world. So there has to be a God, but you don't know who he is yet. You've already tasted his goodness and creation. Why don't you try tasting his salvation in Jesus Christ? That's the next step for you. Uh, realize that Jesus Christ came for you because he loves you. That if you're the only one alive when he came, he still would have gone to that cross to die for your sins to bring you into a right relationship with God. And that when the Bible calls you to believe and trust and become a follower of Christ, that's your next step in tasting God's goodness. So taste more of him now through salvation. For some of you who have already done that, you've tasted him in creation, you've already gotten saved, maybe now you need to taste more of him in his word. You're, you're one of these biblically illiterate Christians that scour the evangelical world or all over the evangelical world, and you need to now grow in your knowledge of his truth. So taste him on the pages of this book, learning truth after truth of who he is, allowing those truths to draw you to himself. Some of you have done that. You said, well, Jamie, I've gotten saved. I've, I've appreciated God's goodness in creation. I've tasted him in his word. Why don't you try tasting him now in worship? Why don't you taste him in worship? You know, one of the things our church is not known for is being a worshiping church. Don't get me wrong. We're known for our good music. We're known for our wonderful big orchestra. We're known for our good rock bands. But we're not known as a church that really gives ourselves to God in worship. We're too stoic to be known for that. And so maybe the next step for some of us is to start to let go and give ourselves to God in worship. I remember years ago, it was a funny thing. In my last church, we just hired a new worship director, and I thought he was great. I mean, he was, he, he was a management in a symphony for a while, and he played a Stratocaster electric guitar so he could go from Bach to rock, and he was really cool. He was about my age, but he had a ponytail, which I thought was really neat. Kind of like Troy, you know, with his weird hair. This guy had a ponytail, and I thought, you know, he's an artist. I mean, that's just awesome. And so he was leading us throughout the whole worship thing, and I'm giving my heart to God in worship when he's leading us. And I was leading a men's Bible study one day, and we were talking about our church, and they said, yeah, we love our church, but you know what? I, who's that guy think he is? I just don't like that ponytail. And then they said, you know, and, and not only the ponytail, but he plays some songs that I don't really like, and da-da-da-da. After about five minutes of hearing that junk, I finally stopped these guys, and I said, stop! I said, listen to yourselves talk! I said, you're sitting there in God's house, ready to give your heart to him, and you're allowing a ponytail and a song choice keep you from worshiping God. I said, honestly, if God were to strike you down in that moment and you had to go before him, would you want that to be your last thought? I said, don't allow that to keep you from God. Get over the ponytail, get over the fact that it's not your song, and worship him. It didn't work at all. They didn't hear a word that I said. I'm glad y'all did because they didn't hear any of that. I'm telling you, they gave me that deer in the headlights look like you're an idiot, Jamie. Just move on to the next topic, you know, which I get quite often. But I, I, you know, I heard that. But I thought to myself, I'm right. I'm right. I know I'm right. I mean, that is cogent theology there. And all I know is that I like a particular kind of worship. I do. I'm I'm from the rock generation. So, you know, that's my stuff. When I hear that stuff, I tend to be drawn more to God. But you know what? Whenever a hymn is playing, like that one that we had right before the sermon here, I'm telling you, I'm giving my heart to God in worship. I I am. Why? 
even though it's not my song, the, the words are cogent. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. How could you not worship to that? How could you not give your heart to God in that? And so the reality is, is that I've learned over the years that I don't just stop at creation or salvation or even the word. I give my heart to him in worship. I hope you do too. We don't have time to go into this, but some of you are independent Christians. It's just you and God. Your next step to taste his goodness is to learn to fellowship and connect with other Christians. Some of you are consumer Christians. You always take in via sermons and song and Bible study. You need to taste God's goodness through learning to serve. Some of you are activist Christians. You're always doing, doing, doing something for God. You need to taste his goodness through silence and Sabbath. You get the picture. There's room for all of us to taste more of God's goodness for you. Commit today to tasting more of his goodness to you. Combined with the humility that we're going to talk about next week, you'll be on a pathway toward understanding and experiencing his grace more fully in your life. And then lastly, affirm this, and with this we're done, and that is that I will live out of my new nature that reflects God's goodness. You're going to like this one. I will live out of my full new nature that reflects God's goodness. I I hinted to this earlier. The fact is this. God is good. He's good because of who he is. And because he is good, he does good things. Now here's what's going to blow your mind. When you got saved, God put his Holy Spirit in you and is now in the process of making you good. He is. He's in the process of redeeming and changing you. And now the deepest part of you where the Holy Spirit lives is a good part. And over and over again, what the Scriptures say as a result of that is show that goodness to those around you. Look at Romans chapter 15, verse 14. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. And then Ephesians 5, verses 8 and 9, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. You know, one thing many Christians are not known for is their goodness. And that's sad. The, the, the fact that we are supposed to be known as those who are the most righteous, the most moral, the most loving, the most kind, the most generous, in short, the most good. And so I wonder if for some of us, our next step is to start to live out the nature that God has now put in us. Dig deep, Christian, and start to live out of the goodness that he has given you. Next week, we're going to learn what happens when you combine our humility with a deep belief in God's goodness. And I'm telling you, it's catalytic. It's catalytic. But until then, I want you to ponder and chew on the goodness of God. It's who he is, and it's what he does. It's seen in so many ways, not the least of which are creation, revelation, and redemption. So thank him for it. Taste it more and practice it yourself. You'll be glad that you did. Servers, why don't you come get ready to service communion. For the rest of us, let's bow right now in the 940 service, and then the 1110 are going to have their own communion time, but let's all pray together. Father, I thank you for uh, this wonderful setup to really what is the, the pinnacle of our time together, the Lord's Supper, or what we celebrate as communion. I thank you, God, that when Jesus was on this earth, he saw fit, according to your will, to take the bread and to take the wine and to make a very powerful, powerful object lesson out of it that does nothing but draw us to you in worship. I thank you that that bread and that that wine symbolize the body and the blood of Jesus that was given for us so that we might truly know him and have eternal life. 
So God, I pray that as we take these elements now, as Troy leads us in, in a song of worship to you, that God, we would not be shy to give our hearts to you, to use this as a time to worship and pray. And that Lord, we would focus and thank you for your goodness to us and salvation. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.